All right, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this beautiful day you've given us. Thank you, Lord God, that you um, bring us together, you draw us together as a church family, whether we're in person, whether we're watching online, whether we're watching a day later, we're listening to a day later, Lord, you bring us together by your Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing. And we just want to give you praise and we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I just pray as we sang earlier, we pray that you would revive us, Lord. Revive us, Lord God, as a church. Revive us, Lord, individually in our own lives. If we find ourselves spiritually dry or hungry, Lord, I pray that you would revive us. Wake us up, Lord God. Open our eyes to the world we're living in. And may we find ourselves useful for you. Lord, as we get into your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that you would move in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you could leave a parting message, so find some final words to your loved ones or those you care about before you pass away, your final words, what would you say to them? Now, you're probably thinking, wow, that's a great starter, Pastor Mike. Here you come back, and you're bringing up that kind of somber tone. I'm not trying to be somber here. Right? I don't want to bring you down and think about that kind of situation, but you'll see why I ask. But if you could give your final words, a final message before you pass, what would you say? What would be your, your words? I mention that because um, I, I'm on a Facebook uh, group page of alumni from my old high school. I went to a Christian school. Um, and uh, so I saw someone posted, made a post on the Facebook page. And, and it was a blog entry of an alumni. Uh, they were, I didn't know the person personally, uh, but they put a blog post up, and the blog was final words. Uh, this person had cancer and passed away from cancer, but she had made a post before she passed. She shared some final words, and uh, this person started a post saying, like, if you're reading this, then you'll know that I, have, I, I, I had passed away you know, from, from cancer. And so she, she wrote a blog post to those who, you know, her loved ones and those who would care. And she gave her thanks. She thanked everybody for the concerns. She tried to encourage them, you know, not to be, not, while you may be sad or mourning, you know, not to be too sad. But the most of the, the, the center of the post was that she shared her testimony and she shared the gospel. She wanted her final words to those who she knew, those who cared for her, those who prayed for her, to be the gospel message. That not to be sad for her because she is with the Lord. She's in a better place. She's with her loved ones that had already passed. 
So it made me kind of think about what, what would we say? What would I say? What would be my words of parting to those who care to read it or hear it? I mentioned also that reminded me of this passage because as we're looking at, at Philippians in our study, the more as we're going along in our study, the more I see that for Paul, it seems like this letter seems like his, his final words just in case. In the event that this is his final message to the church in Philippi, what would I say? Right? We've talked about how Paul had hopes that he would see them again, and he felt confident that he would see them again, but what if? What if he didn't? We mentioned how, you know, sometimes in life, things don't end up how we want it to, right? We have an expectation, we have a hope, but sometimes it doesn't end up being the way we want it to. So we see that with Paul. And so for Paul and his consideration, we've seen in the past, in in the passages, his mentality, right, his focus in life was always towards what? Eternity, right? He always had salvation in mind, eternity in mind, redemption in mind, and that his life, how he saw his journey in life, all led to eternity. It led to eternity. Salvation, redemption. The last couple of messages, we looked at the example of Jesus, right? How Jesus was the example of humility. That he was an example of sacrifice. He was an example of suffering before a cause. And we talked about how as Christians, why do we believe these things? Why do we believe in Jesus? Why should we listen to what Paul has to say to us? And how we to live our lives? Why should we live a different life? And so we've been looking at the last couple of weeks how it's because of Jesus. Who Jesus is. What he has done. What he is continuing to do and what he will do. We believe and we change our lives because Jesus paved the way. He set the example for us. So that if we are to understand our life as a journey, our life as a journey to eternity, what should that look like? Right? Because we read the Gospels, we see Jesus' story, we see what Jesus did leading up to the cross and how he ascended to the Father. But for our lives, if we are to follow Christ's example, what does it look like? What should it look like, especially in the world we live in today? And why is it important for us So hopefully as we're looking at Philippians, you're seeing a glimpse, you're seeing a picture of what that should look like. How to live for Christ. What does it mean to live a Christian life? We're going to continue to take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're looking at the journey to eternity. If our life is a journey leading to eternity, what should it look like? We'll pick it up, chapter 2, verse 12. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Verse 17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, I don't know if you've caught this, but Paul embraced this role of a spiritual father to those he ministered to. Those who he shared the gospel with. These churches that he planted, he, he birthed and helped establish in all these different cities. He adopted and embraced this role of a spiritual father to these people. And, I, and that really comes to mind when I read this, where it says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as just in my presence only, but he talks about, but now much more in my absence. How many of you are familiar with this term, when the cat's away, What? The mice will play. What does that mean when the cat's away, the mice will play? Right? At home, if your parents go out, how many of you are like, yeah, no, no, really? I'm okay, mom, dad, go ahead, go ahead. Here, let me open the door for you, right? When mom and dad's away, the things seem a little bit different, right? How about at work? When you know the boss is going to be away. How many smiles are on your faces when you find out the boss is sick today? Right? When you have a substitute teacher. Oh my goodness, I've substitute taught before. Oh my goodness. That's a celebration, right? When the cat's away, the mice play. In other words, you act a little bit different when the boss or the authorities are. I'm not even talking about husbands when your wives are away. I don't think it works the same way with the reverse, right? See, what Paul's addressing here is, look, not just while I'm here with you, but even more if I'm away from you, Paul's bringing up the importance of consistency, right? Consistency of character, consistency of faith, consistency of how you live your life, right? Be consistent, not just when I'm here with you, but when I'm away, right, I wasn't here with you guys, but I think things were great. I don't, uh, from what I heard last week, that, you know, it didn't skip a beat, right? I think it has more to say about you, right? Consistency. But Paul says, but now much more in my absence, now even more than I'm away from you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, He urges them to work out your salvation. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Work out your salvation. At first reading, you may think, well, that sounds kind of like works righteousness. Work for your salvation. Right? How do we work out our salvation? Do we produce our salvation? And that's not what Paul's saying. That's certainly not the case. I mentioned earlier about how Paul... He directly relates his life, what we do now, with eternity, right? This is our journey towards 
eternity, eternity, salvation, redemption. This is the lens in which Paul sees his life. Everything in his life leads to salvation, redemption, eternity, right? Now, most people, most people don't live that way, right? Most people don't live that what they do in life is inconsequential to eternity. Their daily life doesn't have eternity in mind, right? What they do is kind of inconsequential. It doesn't affect eternity, not in their mindset. But that's not the case with Paul. For Paul, everything he does in life, most center thing is for eternity in mind. His heart was the gospel, right? To bring the gospel both to Jews and Gentiles alike. His heart was for the life of the church, to equip you, this is how you ought to live for Christ. That was center for Paul's life. We see that throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you were perfected until the day of Christ, Jesus. Paul saying, look, what God is doing in you now is going to continue on in the future up until the day of Christ. Verse 10, he talks about, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So again, Paul's talking about, look, this is how you ought to be all the way up until the day of Christ. He's looking forward. Verse 20 of chapter 1, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, look, whether I live or die, Christ is going to be exalted long after I may pass. You see in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, we saw Paul use the example of Christ. What Christ did for us led to exaltation, right? So our life of humility leads us that one day we will be exalted by the Lord in eternity, right? So we see Paul's perspective, his journey, is all leading towards salvation. We'll see more of this later in chapter 3. So going back to the phrase, work out your salvation, what does that mean to work out your salvation? That word to work out means to perform, to accomplish, to work out, to do that which something results in. To do that which something results in. Notice, to work on to the end. So what does Paul mean? He's saying, do. Do that which results in salvation. Do what results in salvation and do this to the end. Live out what you claim to have to the very end. If you claim you have salvation through Christ, live that out to the very end. I see that phrase connecting with chapter 1, verse 27. If you remember, you can flip over. You have your Bible. I don't have a slide for that. But in verse 27 of chapter 1, remember Paul exhorting the church. He says, only conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Jesus. Conduct yourselves in a worthy manner. Remember, we talked about this, how Paul's not saying that we can be worthy of the gospel in of ourselves. Right? We're not worthy in ourselves. There's nothing we can do or have done to have earned the right to be saved. But it's by God's grace alone. But he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy 
of Christ. Now, if you remember, I, I mentioned, uh, I did an example of Disneyland. And you can substitute, if you're not a big Disneyland fan, you can substitute whatever you want. But what's Disneyland known as? Happiest place on earth, right? I don't know if that's true or not. But Disney tries to provide everything you could possibly have to have a happy experience at Disneyland, right? Exciting rides, uh, lovable characters, really, really expensive food. I don't know. But Disney tries to provide all that you need to experience happiness. Now, does this mean it gives you license to do whatever you want that you think will make you happy? Can you do whatever you want at Disneyland because you think, well, I want to be happy and this is the happiest place on earth. Can you go around trying to unmask the Disney characters because you think it would be funny? Can you, have a, can you get into a fight with Goofy? I've seen some kids do that. Have you ever seen kids do that? They go to the character and they try to punch the character. I'm like, whose kid is this? Right? Can you go and just cut any line because it's going to make you happy? Of course not, right? Can you go on It's a Small World and just splash whomever you want that's not family? Of course not, right? Have you ever done that? It's a Small World is the wettest ride in Disneyland, depending on who you're with. I don't know if you've ever done that. I can't tell by your expression, so I can't tell because you're all wearing masks. I can't tell if you can relate or not. But I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've been with the family. It's a small world, and you know, you're supposed to enjoy things, but you wait till it gets darker, and then what do you do? Dip in there and splash your, splash your family, right? And then when you get out of the tunnel, because you're not supposed to splash on It's a Small World, and you're coming out, and like everybody's wet, and as you're trying to pretend as if, oh, I, I don't know how I got this wet. Must have been the ride, right? You're not allowed to do anything you want at Disneyland just because you think it'll make you happy. You're supposed to conduct yourselves in a manner that, look, you know, you deserve, you can, you're worthy of just staying around Disneyland. Unless you want to get in trouble and go into Disney jail, which is a real thing. I don't know if you know that, right? Conduct yourselves in a manner that is fitting for you to be there. Paul talks about conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of Christ. Here Paul says, work out your salvation. Use your salvation muscle. What good is change if you never change? I'm going to be a little self-deprecating. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if I mentioned every of you, but when I worked at Amazon, I lost like 20 pounds. And I was like, wow, that's pretty good. Since not, since coming here, I gained it all back. I did nothing with that. Gained it all back. What good was that? I don't know. He said, work out your salvation. Do that which results in your salvation to the very end. Do that which leads you to salvation to the very end. This is the third instance of Paul charging the church. He has a bold charge, an exhortation to the church. He first does it in chapter 1, verse 27 that we just read. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he charges the church. And so this is the third charge he gives to the church of what you ought to do, how you ought to live. And he says, do so, live out your salvation. Do that which produces salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now this fear and trembling here is not speaking the kind of fear that you may have of spiders. Any of you afraid of spiders? 
Yeah? Any of you scared of heights? Okay, some of you, maybe. All right, it's not that kind of fear. It's not referencing the kind of trembling you would have if someone forced you to jump out of a plane. It's not that kind of fear. Because see, that kind of fear, fear of spiders, a fear of heights, that kind of fear keeps you from doing something, right? Prevents you from doing something. You don't want to be near a spider, you don't want to jump out of a plane, you don't want to go on any heights, anything like that. This fear and trembling that is spoken throughout Scripture is great reverence and awe of God. This fear and trembling doesn't prevent you, but what it's supposed to do is to make sure you do what is right before God. It's supposed to lead you to right action. That, that fear and trembling before God is like, you know what, I want to make sure that I do right before God. It doesn't keep you scared of God, but it's supposed to keep you so that you do what is right before Him. You want to do excellent for the Lord. He goes on and says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now there's four verbs attributed to God, what God is doing. He says it's at work to put forth power, be operative. The third verb attributed to God in this passage, to will, to have in mind, to desire. And the fourth one is to work, to put forth power, be operative, to effect. So what Paul's saying here is that God is going to be at work. God is the effective power. He is empowering you, and He is willing you. He is putting His will in you and enabling you to do, right? So this idea of work out your salvation, Paul is addressing, look, just to be clear, it's not you that's producing anything. It's not you trying to be good enough for God. It's not, trying, it's not for you trying to produce your own salvation. Paul makes it clear, it is God who's working at you. Do so with fear and trembling, knowing because God is at work in you. God is willing you. He's desiring for you. He's working in your life. He's enabling this in you. I like what this one commentator puts it. He says, divine action does not curtail human action, but rather provokes a reaction which it supports. I like that. I like that. I like that phrase. Divine action doesn't curtail, curtail human action, but rather provokes a reaction which it supports. Now, many people shy away from getting baptized. I don't know how many of you can, can relate to this, whether you're baptized now or you've been thinking about baptism. Many people are afraid or they fear getting baptized. A lot of that fear is because they, they feel like they don't know whether they can live up to an expectation of a baptized Christian. Maybe you can relate to that. I, think, I, I kind of relate this, this fear is very similar to kids. When kids have this fear that they can't live up to their parents' expectation. Right? Maybe you could recall a time like that, a stage in your life where you felt like your parents had an expectation of you and that you were afraid that you could not meet up to that expectation. So what often happens is what do kids do? They just rebel, right? They go the other way because they feel like I'm, I'm going to fail to meet a certain expectation. So they feel like they're going to go the opposite way. 
doesn't always make sense, but sometimes that happens. And I think for a lot of Christians, a lot of people, they want to get baptized, but they're afraid. What about the expectation? What if I can't meet that expectation? So they, they push away from that. Paul wants to say, look, it's God at work in you. Don't feel like you can do enough on your own, but know that God is going to be at work in you. Remember, if you saw, remember Romans chapter 12, we talked about, is God at work in us, the Holy Spirit? He's the one that renews and transforms our minds. So just as God is at work in us, we're also not excused from the choices we make. We're not given freedom just so that we can do whatever we want. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That word murmuring, muttering, secret debates, voicing your displeasure, questioning about what is true, disputing, doubting. Now here, Paul is probably going back to chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, when Paul was exhorting the church there. He's probably addressing this idea of making sure that you're united in the same mind, in the same spirit, sharing the same love, not to esteem, esteem yourself above others, right? He talks about grumbling and disputing. You know, grumbling and disputing often are symptoms of verses 2 through 4, where people aren't on the same page. They don't have the same mind. They're not sharing the same love of Christ. They're looking at their own interests rather than the interests of others, right? So grumbling and disputing are often symptoms of this. I'm sure we've all seen situations like this, right? Whether it's in church, whether it's in other businesses, when people aren't seeing the same way, when everyone's looking out for their self-interests, what ends up happening? After a meeting or something, you have one or two people go around like, oh, man, how do you feel? Can you believe this guy? I can't believe him. What's he doing? I don't agree with how things are going. And they start to murmur, grumble, and they start to talk. What do you think we should do? Let's uprise. <laughs> Let's complain. Let's cause a stir. And all that happens. And then disputes happen. Right? Arguments happen. How many churches have broken up because of this? How many groups have broken up? How many friendships have broken up because there's complaints, little biting, talking behind backs? And Paul's saying, you do all these things without grumbling and complaining. Why? Because in verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Paul refers to our witness to a crooked and perverse generation. Now, who's Paul referring to here when he says a crooked and perverse generation? That word crooked, perverse, or wicked. To distort, turn aside, to turn aside from the right path. Perhaps Paul is referring to that generation of Jews who rejected the Messiah and distorted the message of God's word. If you read the Gospels, Jesus referred to that generation as a wicked, evil, adulterous, perverse generation because they refused to believe. Their unbelief and their lack of faith 
They demanded a sign from God over and over and over again. Jesus, if you say who you are, who you say you are, show us a sign. Jesus did all that he needed to do, and they still needed a sign. Whether that's what Paul refers to, you even look at today. Look at our generation we're living in now. It's a perverse and wicked generation. And it's only getting worse. That word perverse generation literally means that they are actively turning aside. They're actually literally distorting the right path. And I'm concerned for you, the young generation today. Because the world is leading to a path that's distorted. Distorted from what God had intended. And they don't even know that it's distorted. I'm concerned about the parents of this generation. Because parents of this generation are so consumed and concerned about their children. They want their children to be happy. They want them to be successful. That they don't realize that they're allowing their children to be steered in the wrong direction. They're willing to give their kids whatever they want to make them happy. They don't realize they're going the wrong path. He says, look, do all these things. Verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. It seems Paul really likes using the threes. Threes as emphasis, right? We saw it in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We see it in verse 7 and 8. And here he used threes again. He emphasizes to be blameless, to be pure or unmixed, and to be faultless. Those three things, synonymous words, use as emphasis, look, that you could prove yourself to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach among this generation in whom you are lights. This is similar to a prayer. Remember in chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, Paul talks, he started off this letter telling about the church in Philippi. I pray for you. He says, and I pray that your love may abound still more and more so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until Christ. So here Paul again is reminding them, I want you to be blameless. Strive to be blameless above reproach in this generation so that you can be lights in this generation. See, we need to shine in this generation. People who are in the dark, have you ever sat in a room that it was lit. Maybe you're doing your homework or you're watching TV and hours went by and next thing you know it, it's like, it's like dark. And then mom comes in the room. It's like, why are you sitting in the dark? Right? Turns on the lights. And you're like, I didn't even notice. Right? We get used to the dark. Sometimes people don't even realize they're in the dark. Have you ever had a joke among friends and there's just one friend who's in the dark? <laughs> they don't know and they're left in the dark? They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. People don't know they're in the dark until a light shines, until they see a difference, until truth is given. I don't know about you've been in a situation where someone told you a truth that you had no idea. It's like all these years, now I find this out. 
says, so that you can be a light in this generation. Holding fast to the word of life, to have a hold on, to observe, give attention to. Hold fast the word of life. Whose word do you hold on to? Whose word are you willing to hang your life on? Who do you listen to so much that you, whatever someone says, you're going to do? There's a lot of voices today, right? A lot of people are willing to hang their life on certain individuals. It's amazing when someone popular or famous sends a tweet out and you read the comments, I don't advise you to do it, but if you do, it's like they're just like, oh my goodness, you know, they, they just hang their whole life on that just because they're famous. Maybe it's a teacher. You're, whatever a teacher says to you, that's just truth, that's gospel to you. But that teacher might have an atheist worldview. They may not be a Christian. So their perspective is different. It's a situation, it's, it's just from a different mindset. But so many people will hang their life on the word of somebody. Who do you hang your, the word, your, your life on, the words to? Jesus said, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ that I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I love what Paul is saying here. I want you to do all these things so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory. Paul refers to the day of Christ three times here. In Philippians, we mentioned in verse 1 through 6, in verse 1 through 10. Oh, wait, sorry. Yeah, there you go. Whoops. There we go. There we go. Verse 10, approve that things are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory. See, we talked about how Paul's future, his mindset, his world was always towards the future, towards eternity, that day of Christ, the day of the Lord. For the unbelieving world, the day of the Lord is judgment, is condemnation, is being held accountable for all their actions. For us as believers, that day of Christ, that's a different experience. That's realization of the faith that we lived in that day of Christ. Christ is glorified and we're exalted with him. All those years of living in faith, all those years of believing, even when it seemed like it was difficult to believe, that day will come when your faith is, is fulfilled. And it's like, this is it. This was the reason. See, I like what Paul says here, the reason for it. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, I wonder, often wonder, I don't know if you've ever wondered this, I was wondering, how aware will we be of each other? Have you ever thought of that? When we're with the Lord, how much will we remember of this life? I don't know if I have a great answer to that. I don't, I have it hard to believe that we'll remember all the bad things. I hope we don't. (laughs) All the suffering, all the challenges. But I like what Paul says here. His expression seems to give this idea that he's going to be aware. 
He says, do that so that my toil, so that in the day of Christ, my toil, I'll be able to glorify, I'll be able to have a joy, and I'll know that my work and my toil won't be in vain. Can you imagine that scene? When we're with the Lord, and we see the people that we share the gospel with. Can you imagine that? You go and you see the person you share the gospel with, you go, whoa, I'm so glad you're here. I didn't think you were going to make it. You mean you actually decided? Man, I'm glad I prayed a little bit more. You're like, yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> I didn't know you were for real either. <laughs> you go to see somebody, oh, you're good. I'm glad you're here. Man, you are a tough nut to crack. It took years to get through you, but I'm so glad you're here. What a joy that would be to be able to recognize and say, you know what, wow. There was a reason after all. It says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Here's why I think Paul's words kind of sounds like final words. Because he's a picturing this future scene. He says, even if I'm being poured out like a, a drink offering, now there's like a sacrifice offering. If someone is sacrificed to their gods, right? Back in the day, they poured blood as a sacrifice. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. He brings up joy. He brought up joy in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, I pray with joy for you all. He mentioned in verse 25 that he serves for the progress and the joy in their faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about make my joy complete. And here we see a picture of his joy complete. He says, nothing will give me more joy than when we're in the day of Christ and I see that you are here in eternity and we can share that joy together, that all that work and toil was not in vain. It wasn't for nothing. You believed. You were here. And I imagine that scene for us, what a celebration that would be. All that work, all that toil, all these things that we do as a church. All that struggle, faith fully realized, and we celebrate the journey of joy or the journey of faith together in eternity. Can you imagine that? You think of graduations. How many of you had your child graduate from high school? Some of you. How many of you had your child graduate from college? Was that a joyful experience for you all? All right, you feel kind of proud. Oh, my child, they made it through high school. I always kind of find it a little funny. You know, you, you hear the, the valedictorian speeches, and the valedictorian says, we made it. So did a whole bunch of students, right? But you made it, yes. You graduated high school. You graduated college. Parents are so proud that their kids made it past high school. They made it past college. Think of reunions. I don't know if you've ever had a reunion, a family reunion, a class reunion. You had a big party, a birthday party. 
You celebrate a championship with your team. I mentioned that last week. I'm hoping that I can experience that this year. An awards night. Maybe you've experienced the thrill of receiving an award. Maybe the last day of school. Do you celebrate the last day of school? You like throw your papers. You throw them in the trash. Like forget this. I'm done with that. I'm done with school. Retreat up in the mountains. A big praise night. A New Year's Eve party. Ever had a big New Year's Eve party start to the new year? Christmas, Thanksgiving, all these things put together doesn't even compare. And the day of Christ comes and we can celebrate eternity together. Can you imagine that? As a pastor... I've served in a number of churches. I've lost touch with many people. I don't know where they're at. What a joy it would be in eternity to see those faces, assuming I could recognize them, and to say, oh, praise God. As a parent, the joy to see your child, your sibling, that is all reason to live in faith, to live for Christ. Think of that day, that glorious day, when we could say, man, it was worth it. It was worth living for Christ. Now we can celebrate. Now we can rejoice in fullness. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, We just thank you. We thank you, Lord, that our journey doesn't have a dead end. Our journey doesn't have to end poorly. But we can look at our life and say, Lord, it's leading us to a glorious day. And Lord, we want to share that joy with those we care about. We want to share that joy with those who need to hear the gospel of Christ. Fill our hearts, Lord God, with that desire to serve and live for you so that on that day we can share that joyous occasion together. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.